Good afternoon. Welcome to Modernizing Government in the Cloud in Highly Regulated Environments. I know that's a mouthful. Um, this is a pretty exciting day for me. My name is Doug Van Dyke. I've been with uh, Amazon Web Services for five years. I was here at the first reInvent. And what's exciting for me is we were told this day would never happen. We were told that the U.S. government would adopt cloud services. They would do it for storage. They would do it for websites, but never for mission systems. Well, today it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce the three largest uh, members from the three largest departments in the U.S. federal government. So we have representatives from the Department of Defense, Department of uh, Veterans Affairs, and DHS, Homeland Security. So let me start by saying that we're going to talk about the real mission applications. We're going to talk not just about the good stuff. We're going to talk about the challenges, the growth pains. We're going to talk about how the mission has been sped up. We're going to talk about how the mission has been made more secure. We're going to screech every once in a while if we think you're sleeping. We're going to make sure that high-pitched noise wakes you up. Um, so first of all, let me start with uh, the, the first three-star general that we've had at reInvent, U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General Samuel Greaves. Yes, sir. Well, good afternoon, um, and thanks for being here. As uh, was mentioned, I'm uh, Sam Greaves. I'm, I wear a number of hats within the United States Air Force. Uh, one of which is the commander of the Space and Missile Systems Center in Los Angeles that does acquisition for DOD space systems, everything from the global positioning system, which I'm going to talk about today and focus on, to missile warning systems, to weather systems, to launch systems, rockets um, that we, we contract out. The other hat I wear is the um, program executive officer for space within the Air Force, so all the acquisition duties going up to, to the Air Staff and uh, down to OSD. And, and the reason why I'm here is to focus on really, really great progress we've made recently with one of our major challenges within my space portfolio, and that's with the ground system that will be controlling the newest uh, version of our global positioning system satellites, the satellites that do position navigation and timing, everything from maps to um, location anywhere on the face of the planet to its military applications. And what we attempted to do with uh, the operational control segment, the OCX system as we call it, was deliver the Department of Defense's first information assurance hardened capability for ground system control. Now you need the satellites which are transmitting the signals, you need a communications link, and you need the ground system, and you need user equipment to make it all work. What I'm going to be focusing on today as part of my comments and feedback is the operational control segment, the first IA hardened baseline. Um, it was, the contract was awarded to the Raytheon Corporation back in 2010. And if you think back about what we did not know about IA back in 2010 to what we know about it today, um, decisions were made to essentially do your requirements flow down while you're coding at the same time and then hope that uh, uh, things would work out in the end. And we learned very, very badly that uh, that, that didn't work. So we ended up in a situation where the code was just about written and we got into integrated test and the, the code was not working in test. And so this is the newest 
version of what is the basis of, if not the basis, a significant contribute to our economy within the United States as well as our national defense. So we took a hard look at it, and I call him the chief weapons buyer within the Department of Defense, Mr. Frank Kendall, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, together with our Secretary of the Air Force, the Honorable Deborah James, plus my boss and me, we took a look at the program and decided that based on the feedback we were getting, that where we needed the help most was creating test environments where we could test the software against and doing that in a reliable and predictable fashion. And you'll hear from Chris and Eric here shortly, but the DDS folks really contributed significantly to what I call a major cultural shift within the Air Force and within my portfolio for delivering ground software capability. They essentially, because of the situation we were in when the program was about to be terminated, because we couldn't field enough test environments, hardware, quickly enough to meet the schedule and the need that was laid upon us, they brought the idea forth of operating within the cloud, test environments within the cloud, and the benefits of doing it rapidly, being able to reconfigure quickly. We were talking weeks to months to reconfigure between one test environment to another. The hardware was aging, and the cloud capability allowed us to essentially buy a lot of schedule back, reduce costs, and deliver capability as promised. And we're going through that development right now. So we broke a lot of glass, and I'll be glad to talk about it a little later, as far as getting certification and permission from the Department of Defense to use cloud-based services to develop these test environments. These folks were very much involved with it. But I'm here to talk to all of you, but to the other government folks in the audience, to remind you that the old way of doing business may not be the best way for today and into the future. Be open to taking risks and understanding that there may be another way to do it. We did it, and we're seeing the benefits of it today. So I look forward to your questions. Thank you. General, I appreciate you saying that. It's not always easy to do, but I appreciate you saying that. And then Eric Schoonover, our next speaker, was one of the original pioneers in the cloud, first at Netflix, and now has joined digital services with the Defense Digital Services. So, Eric. Yeah, so in 2011, the very beginning of 2011, I joined Netflix and helped them to scale out of U.S. East to make them a multi-region piece of software. In 2013, I left Netflix and did a couple of startups in the Bay Area and then went to Time, Inc., the big magazine publisher, Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine. And I worked with their new CTO there to build a software engineering team that was capable of taking advantage of AWS. After a few years there and building a successful capability there, I started at United States Digital Service out of the White House, did a few months at the Social Security Administration, and then in June of this year started at the Department of Defense and picked up 
the GPS mission control software uh, project that uh, is run out of General Greaves' organization. Uh, there we have been, as he said, focused on the, re the rapid and reliable delivery of working software. So I think at, at least what I've seen in, in the private sector is I consider these like table stakes capabilities or fundamental capabilities. You should have a source control system that when it changes, builds happen and tests run and infrastructure is provisioned and software is deployed into that infrastructure and functional tests run. And uh, the contractor on the project did not have that capability when we started it and we're very close now to actually leveraging that capability on about 10% of the engineering workforce there, which is um, uh, about 100 engineers will be using this in the next month, and then hopefully the whole program within the next six months. Uh, so it's it's a that's what I'll be talking about as well. And but but it's a huge it's a huge step forward for this project, and I think for the DoD in general. That's the first time that the DoD has ever used a commercial cloud uh, for this type of capability. Well, Eric, we're excited to have you helping the U.S. government bringing some of those commercial best practices over. Um, to, to your right, uh, Chris Lynch, the director of Defense Digital Services. Chris. So this is something that um, I'll say this is a screenplay that we see uh, very often at the Department of Defense. And to be honest, it's something that we see a lot throughout government. Um, I'll say one of our primary functions within digital service is simply telling the story of being really good at the art of developing software. So, and, and getting text messages. <laughs> yeah, that's our other ploy to keep everyone on their toes. But really, the, the reason that I bring that up is it, the art of developing software is something that we want to be good at in the United States government. And it's important because everybody who's in this room and the type of people that we try to bring into government we want to bring those skill sets in. That's one of the biggest challenges that we have. You know, General Greaves mentioned being open to new ways to build software. I can't emphasize that enough. This screenplay, we see it over and over. So I'll talk a little bit more about this as we go through, but what is digital service? You know, I like to summarize it as it's our ability to bring in the best talent, the best technology, and the best processes from private sector to really transform how we build services in government. But if I were to kind of think about it, we kind of function more as a SWAT team of nerds who just try to be really, really good at building things and, pardon my language, getting shit done. Because if we actually do that, we can show to people that there is a better way to do this stuff. So I'm a very results-oriented person as opposed to attacking it from just a process uh, perspective alone or looking at it from a policy perspective. Um, a couple of things, though, that we do look at, we're look, uh, and we kind of repeat these messages over and over and over as we go through projects that we pick, are look at the amount of time that it takes for a developer to actually get an answer, did my code work, right? Like those are things that we like to ask as we go through. Did we actually, did my code actually do what it was supposed to? Did it pass or fail? Did it actually get deployed to something that looks like a production environment? You know, Eric was mentioning before in his background, we all take that as table stakes, things that we take for granted. I promise you, those are unique novel and interesting skill sets. They're unique, novel, and interesting perspectives that we need to bring into the United States government, and particularly the DOD, right? Because you, you can have a trillion dollar project at the DOD. And I just want you to, that's a T, 
right? It's bigger than anything that we're all working on right now. And in in its global scale, that's the amazing thing about it, is we're working on systems. He's GPS. You all use it, right? We would all drive into lakes, right, if it wasn't working <laughs> right. So I like to say that you can work on things that are meaningful. You can work on things that are, uh, actually have an impact. Um, but probably more than anything, we want to bring the skill sets that, that you all have, the things that you work on. We, we believe that building these things in the cloud and using a variety of different technologies, a variety of different things that you all know how to do pretty, hopefully pretty intimately, um, to be kind of the birthright uh, way that we do things at the DoD. Chris, I wish I had a GPS to help me get over here to this room from the Venetian. That would have been really handy. <laughs> All right, next to Eric Heisen, the Executive Director of DHS Digital Service. Cool, thank you. Yeah, and so Chris gave a great overview of USDS as a whole, and uh, Chris, Marina, and I are uh, leads of digital service teams at the three biggest agencies, all under this umbrella of the U.S. Digital Service. So uh, with that, I can just get into what we're doing at DHS. Um, Homeland Security is an incredibly diverse agency, uh, and it's a lot less scary than the name implies. Uh, but it's an, we're an agency that covers everything from uh, securing the borders, the Border Patrol uh, running customs, um, to the TSA, through the Coast Guard, FEMA. Uh, and what I'll mostly be talking about today uh, is administering our, our immigration system. So uh, every year, roughly 7 million people come through our legal immigration system. These are uh, petitioning for relatives to move to this country, getting your green card, going through, and, and ultimately becoming a U.S. citizen. Um, and so 7 million uh, for many of us, for uh, I came from Google, scale that's big but not overwhelmingly large. But when you think about what they're doing, these are people that are literally doing some of the most important things that they will ever do in their entire lives uh, and coming to us for that service. And until very recently, that entire process happened on paper. So you would fill out, actually, how many people in this room have had some interaction with our immigration system? A lot, all right, so you have probably seen the uh, dozens of pages of forms, instructions, uh, the um, opaque in, uh, interview process, uh, and the lack of transparency around where you are in the process. So um, DHS, and in particular U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, one of the agencies under DHS, <coughs> has been working to try to digitize that process for the better part of a decade now. And our team got engaged uh, a little over two years ago when the president was considering executive actions on immigration that could have added another four million people into that system, clearly more than the paper-based process would be able to handle. And uh, what we found, um, was interestingly not as much needing to introduce ideas from the beginning. We came into an environment where most of the buzzwords were, were checked off in some way or another. Um, we had people saying, oh yes, we're doing Agile, we are uh, doing a continuous integration, we're, um, we uh, are in the cloud. But they were checking those off and uh, we added the perspective of what does that actually mean in the places that we have come from. Uh, so we worked with this pro uh, major project to digitize the immigration system that uh, was in a private cloud uh, that required you to uh, fill out an Excel spreadsheet and mail it around to multiple different people for approval to get a new VM spun up. Uh, and then it took days uh, to get that done. Um, and, but the challenge is they said that they were in the cloud by some definition of that. So. Uh, we came in and we sort of repeated this across many different areas and said, that's not really what that means. 
uh, and we worked with them to move into AWS. And what we found was uh, that we, one, had about a third of the cost of what we were spending before. Um, and uh, more importantly than that even was that we were able to increase velocity of the project just so uh, substantially. We were, uh, developers were moving much more quickly. We had more environments running. Uh, we were able to take advantage of new services that were, didn't have to be on the very narrowly scoped set of things that the agency had already procured. Um, and uh, largely because of that ability to accelerate, um, our immigration system today is uh, processed about a third of it is processed completely digitally, and we're on track to keep adding to that um, by bringing in some of these practices that all of you are doing uh, and just applying them in this context. Thank you, Eric. And our final expert witness, just kidding, uh, our final speaker, um, Marina Martin, the Chief Technology Officer at Department of Veterans Affairs. Thanks. Uh, so I, this is my fourth year as CTO at the VA, and when I came in, I found a cloud environment that was uh, very similar to what Eric described. In fact, uh, he has a saying that if I can see your entire cloud without turning my head, it's not a cloud. Uh, so, uh, and, and similarly at VA, it would take months uh, to get you know one server up and, and endless Excel spreadsheets. Uh, VA serves, uh, excuse me, our country has about 20 million veterans. VA serves about 8 million of those. And VA is basically a reflection of how your country values your service. So if our, you can't get into our website, if you can't find basic information, if you can't even open a PDF because it's so old, that we, you know, what is that saying to a veteran or to a surviving spouse or to a family member? I think that that is uh, crushing, and we wanted to fix that. Uh, so when we stood up our digital service team at VA, uh, it'll be two years old this January, we really wanted to get to modern technology because that was the only way we were going to be able to deliver the services that we felt that veterans and their families deserved and had come to expect. Uh, I just came back from a two-week vacation, uh, and I dragged my suitcase around because the wheels were broken because I was so unwilling to pick up the phone and call Samsonite to order replacement wheels because you can't do it online. So, uh, you know, at VA, you could do almost nothing online. You couldn't enroll in healthcare. You couldn't uh, do, do many basics. So when we set up our team, the way that we found most effective to get to modern services like the cloud was to actually try the process ourselves by standing up projects and then getting approval to the cloud. Um, so we're using our Amazon Web Services for a couple of major projects. Uh, one is appeals modernization, which is replacing the internal software that our uh, judges and attorneys and other folks use to process veterans' appeals, uh, which currently take about five years to process. Uh, and the entire system right now is run by one awesome, awesome guy who's run it for the last 30 years on a PowerBuilder 6 app. Uh, and then uh, our other big project is vets.gov, which is consolidating VA's over 500 websites into one modern, mobile-first, you know, responsive site that lets you get in and get out um, and manage, track uh, your, your benefits very quickly. Uh, and to get to the cloud, though, at VA, I would say a big shout-out to Sean, uh, who spent the last two years uh, doing things like writing an essay explaining why you can't plug a USB stick into the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> And Sean's two years are up shortly, so if anybody wants to hire the most amazing employee ever, come find him. Thanks. Well, I am going to do you all a favor and uh, try and be as transparent as possible. So I'm going to ask one leading question to the panel, and then I believe we have a live microphone over here. If people would like to ask questions to a particular panelist or to the whole panel in general, 
please feel free to uh, to step up to the microphone. So I'm going to start uh, from the bottom up. This is my favorite question. How does your organization balance between security and openness? It's the engineering trade-off. I'll start because uh, uh, the we call the GPS mission control software, we call it OCX. So OCX is the first um, piece of software that we've Used, we've leveraged the commercial cloud for development purposes that is IL-5. So OCX is uh, considered a national security system because it controls the GPS satellite constellation. Um, and AWS GovCloud is not approved for IL-5 usage yet. Uh, so I had to go to the DOD CIO and the chief information and security officer and the corresponding folks on the Air Force side, and we had to get a waiver so that we could run this national security system uh, within AWS GovCloud. Uh, part of that was asserting a set of constraints that we would use uh, as we leverage these cloud capabilities. And AWS um, already has submitted all the paperwork for IL-5. So as far as AWS's, the AWS uh, team believes that they have met the IL-5 uh, you know that that they're that they're good for that certification, and that the DoD just needs to go through the process of issuing that certification. So I decided to use um, the opportunity that I had to assert some additional constraints on its usage, more to guide the contractor that's building the system to use AWS in a reasonable way. So the, the purpose of our adoption or our leveraging of GovCloud is to spin up these test environments. So we already have a development lab within the contractor's uh, facilities that all of the engineers work in. It's got build servers, it's got test servers, it's got source control servers, all of the normal things. Um, so the set of requirements that I provided basically said that uh, to ensure that that our, our source is um, uh, clean, I guess, is we will never we will never build anything inside of AWS. We will we will do everything the way we have been doing it, which is we would build and run our unit tests outside of AWS. We would take the artifacts, the unclassified artifacts that we produced, and we would deploy those into automatically provisioned test environments. So we have Terraform configuration files, which is effectively an alternative to cloud formation that spins up. Uh, 30 to 40 instances that make up a test environment, you know, VPC, a bunch of EC2 instances with specific AMIs, uh, and then we deploy the mission software, these unclassified artifacts, into that environment. We execute a bunch of tests, and then uh, according to the requirements that I gave the contractor, is nothing except for the test results can be exported from AWS. So we deploy the software, we test it, we export the results, and then we just delete all the instances. The reason why, um, the reason why I gave those requirements is because more that less that I think it, it substantially increases the the kind of security posture that the program has, but more that it is I, I believe kind of uh, it is a it is a good solid best practice to follow. Like within AWS, you spin something up and you treat it like a software artifact. You use you 
use API calls to spin up instances. You use those instances, and then you destroy them. You don't try to mutate them like you would instances within a data center, for instance. Um, so, like, we're, we're basically, like, AWS GovCloud, we believe, is, is secure if used effectively, and I provided a set of requirements that I believe will push the contractor towards using it effectively. Um, let me just follow up with it, what, what Eric's saying. Um, that's excellent for great technical description, but the other major part of it was getting the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, to agree with everything what Eric just said. And I was involved in that process, and I'm here to tell you that um, what he just told you is reality, that the, that the Air Force, space portfolio, GPS, the global standard for position navigation and timing, the gold standard as we call it, for both military and civil applications, we decided based on the work done by DDS and demonstrated by, by our contractor that we would take that risk. Historically, the U.S. government would not have taken that risk, but the benefits were so clear and, and we saw the performance for DDS and the effect it had on our contractor. They convinced our contractor that this was the way to go. And we talked about it. We made, uh, um, we had sessions with the folks within the Department of Defense who had decision authority, and we were allowed to do it within the constraints that um, Eric described. But bringing the capability to the forefront, explaining or articulating the power of that capability, and then getting the Department of Defense to say yes, three major actions that had to occur, and they occurred rapidly because you had what I call mission people people responsible for delivering the capability to us, the, the, the United States, involved in that process, understanding where we were and where we needed to be, and having faith and, and, um, and, and experience with DDS and our contractor and, and, and uh, AWS to deliver that capability. So um, that's another reason why I'm here, to tell you that um, not forget everything you heard about dealing with the U.S. government, but I'm telling you, it's not the way it was five years ago, that we are, we are understanding where we need to be and where we need to go. Thanks. I love that. That's a good example of where mission drives urgency. I'd like to, do you have another example? I just wanted to talk about maybe the, you asked about open. So one of the programs that we happen to run is something called Hack the Pentagon. Um, it's a bug bounty unrelated to impact level five systems running on GovCloud or anything like that. However, it's just as, I guess it, it is another example of modernization that also has led to some level of openness and it deals with security, right? Where we wanted to introduce the concept of doing a bug bounty um, at the federal government. Uh, wasn't something that was uh, a super popular idea at first. Um, nobody likes to be first. So maybe that's the only thing. You've heard a couple things here about risk, right? Nobody likes to be first. So just remember that anytime you bring something new is you have to get over the, the fear of the, the risk that's coming in. Bug bounty was no different. Um, in this particular case, it actually doing a thing, right? Going out and actually running a bug bounty and finding out that actually the world didn't end, everything didn't melt down, like defense.gov, which was what we ran it on, didn't, didn't, you know, it actually still runs today and it was, everything was fine. Um, doing that actually had a couple different tangible outfit outputs. One was we last week had the uh, uh, first ever vulnerability disclosure policy um, for the entire department, so for all public DOD sites. That came out of doing Hack the Pentagon, which is pretty awesome because it actually allows researchers to now 
tell us what they know is wrong with our systems, um, which before was uh, debatable, right? We actually had no way for them to report, and it was kind of in a uh, dicey situation that if you told us our own vulnerabilities, so now you can report those back to us. Um, so I think that that's a good example of some of the things that you can, that, that uh, at least within government, doing some of these things like getting Impact Level 5, working for the ground control software for GPS, doing Hack the Pentagon, the, the results of these things produce new tools that can be used by others who are working in government, right? You can actually now run a bug bounty in all of DOD. The entire DOD now has an entire template and funding avenue and um, funding mechanism for running their own bug bounties. They don't need us anymore. The other is the vulnerability disclosure policy, which now has an openness play that comes out of that. And then, of course, impact level five, which we're super excited about because we want to do more of this stuff and not have people racking and stacking tons of servers. All right. Do we have any questions from the audience? You know, maybe I can walk a microphone around. You fought so hard to get your chairs. You're hesitant to give them up. Sure. <coughs> I was close anyway. All right. Go for it. So I had a question. Uh, given that you've done this for a couple of years, um, what cloud service models did you start with, and how have you evolved in that position over time? Are you finding that you prefer uh, a particular model over another? So, I mean, I think what we've seen is sort of a mix of uh, two places we've started, uh, just uh, greenfield development, uh, something, oh, a brand new program that we're, we're starting out in the cloud, we're starting with all the right practices, and those have, I think, done, uh, done very well. But uh, we've also seen, so our uh, LSC immigration system is an example of something that was an existing several-year-old piece of software that was operating in a data center. And, uh, we've seen a variety of different models from just doing a straight lift and shift to uh, a complete rebuild and uh, get, uh, trying to use uh, the cloud sort of behind the government network to actually sort of operating fully uh, in the public cloud. And um, where I think we've ended up, and I think we're still in a phase across government where we're trying out different models and seeing what works. Uh, but what we're seeing is... Um, some, uh, something in between a straight lift, a full lift and shift and a uh, complete uh, rebuild, um, taking the most, taking some critical parts of a system, making sure that they are um, uh, re refactoring them in a way that will get you out of some of the most painful areas of uh, your legacy systems, but leaving uh, enough so that you're actually able to move quickly. So um, our immigration system, for example, has a massive Oracle database that is probably not what I would have chosen if I were designing the system from scratch, but uh, we pretty quickly found that uh, completely replacing that not going to be the way that we're going to actually get something out there and get all of the other benefits of working in this way uh, in, in, in a timely manner. So we are using Oracle and AWS now uh, and can, can replace it as we go. Um, and I think so that model of just uh, start uh, moving quickly above all else, uh, not being reckless, but not falling to the falling victim to the temptation of uh, let's do a complete rebuild, a complete refactor and get it perfect uh, has been what's been key for us. I think uh, generally speaking, lift and shift is a waste of time. Like if you have software that works in a data center, there's no point in make, treating AWS like a data center and just lifting and shifting and using their instances instead of yours. Um, you know, there, there are reasonable caveats to that, but you will get so much more out of building your software for the cloud. 
right, thank you. I think, uh, do we have more questions? Oh, we've got some over there. Um, you know, the, uh, we did have people that were brave enough to stand in line. So I'll, I'll bring a microphone over unless you want to, do you want to ask first? And then we'll, you know what, we have a queue started. So it's working. Yay. Day one. You guys figured it out. This is awesome. So uh, modernizing and moving forward, forward thinking is all fine and dandy, but what are the departments doing from a standardization and collaboration standpoint? For instance, uh, with ANA, I have, uh, I'm gainfully employed by two departments, Department of De Defense and Department of Interior, and as we speak, the DOD is phasing out CAC and PIV, and DOD is just now like fully implementing that. So as we, like, what are we doing to communicate across departments so when we are modernizing and working together, like, who's speaking to who and working on that? Uh, well, we all talk to each other. That's a good thing. <laughs> he, he lives four blocks away from me, and she's not too far away. Um, uh, this is hard, right? Um, just the DOD is hard, to be quite honest with you. We three million or so people, not including contractors, right? So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of systems. It builds cities, essentially, and a bunch of different things. And then once you look at the broader government, uh, it gets really tough. So the only way that I know how to solve anything is to uh, go out and do something successful first and use that as a proof point that what you did actually mattered and that it was reasonable. And we do have a willing coalition here of people who have shown up uh, to do this tour of duty for nerds, as I like to call it, um, where we come out here and we do talk to each other. We really do. Um, United States Digital Service, um, which is about 200 or so people, is a good example. And it spreads in, I think, 10 or so federal agencies today. Um, but uh, this is not easy. And standardization is great, but to be quite honest with you, um, we still have people who scan a lot of documents. We still have systems that don't use a mouse. Um, so sometimes I get a little bit too focused on, or less focused on standardization and more on let's do the things that matter today because there's still a lot that we can do together and then hopefully we'll hit enough, hit enough proof points that, that actually matter. I think in addition to everything Chris said, we, one of the things that I started to see is uh, there is a lot of, uh, there are many efforts across the government to standardize on very expensive, multi-year uh, government-focused efforts. And uh, we are starting to see and need to see a lot more of, instead, encouraging standardization and collaboration on the same ways that the private sector is doing those things. Um, so one example is that we now have the federal government's first source code policy that was published a couple of months ago that uh, says that going forward, um, uh, we're starting with 20% and we'll ramp up from there. Uh, all custom developed code for the government will have to be open sourced. And actually more importantly than that, the government actually has to get a copy of all of the source code for the systems that it is uh, contracting and inventory that. And that's going to be um, just a huge change in making technology across the government look more like technology and engineering than a system or a series of unconnected acquisitions uh, where we solve the same problems over and, over and over again. But if we can start to share through code, we will be doing a lot better. So Marina and I have had an example recently where 
um, in processes that both of our agencies run, uh, applicants for benefits will upload or mail in lots of evidence. So for us, it's evidence of an immigration benefit. For uh, the VA, it's uh, evidence of their medical claim. But it's fundamentally, it's a bunch of PDFs that need to be um, that need to be viewed, and that we need to enable our uh, Government, our employees within the government to review those in a way that's more efficient than just downloading a bunch of files and, uh, or even worse, printing them out. So uh, our team at DHS started, scoped this out, did some design work, uh, worked with Marina's team at the VA, um, and when we get done, we will have something that is not going to be just one part of one isolated DHS system, but a repository on GitHub that we'll be able to share and uh, give the, let them start from in the in the VA as well. So I think we're going to have to see more of that and less of a giant multi-year directive uh, to uh, to drive collaboration. Let me take it from a slightly different direction. Um, I mentioned before this culture shift. We need to keep working positive, uh, talking about positive examples like this OCX test environments in the cloud showing that it works to change the culture, not only within the government staff, but within our major defense contractors and their staffs. We will then be able to affect the federal acquisition regulation that drives how we determine our acquisition strategies, how we buy things, what questions we ask. In the past, we would essentially award a contract to a prime contractor, you can name them, and their process for software development would be certified. We would say, just use it. Now we're becoming savvy enough to ask very detailed questions on why aren't you not looking at the cloud, for, as an example, as a way to do things like we're doing. What we're doing here with, with, with OCX may seem to be a small step on your side of the fence, but is a huge step on the government side of the fence where we're essentially saying we don't need to buy all that hardware and keep upgrading it over and over again, getting some hardware delays, which is driving our schedule, driving our costs using the power of the cloud to rapidly reconfigure our test environments to save time, money, and, 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 um, and effort. Again, educating the folks that are doing the work at the lowest levels within the organizations and then empowering them to make that happen, that's something else we need to do. And once these positive examples become well-known across the department, it will spread. If, if, if I don't have much confidence in some edict coming from on high telling the departments, you know, DHS go talk to DOD, create this process, and it'll work. It's got to be in, inculcated into the folks that are doing it, and that's what we're doing now. So thanks. Thank you. All right. Actually, you started. <coughs> can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, you started touching on, on the subject that I was going to ask about, which is sort of related to you have to get through that cultural change and specifically around getting your security um, uh, folks that uh, uh, authorize, audit, to learn anew. Maybe, you know, you've talked about the education and show me and, and essentially do it, but are there particular experiences that you have had in your environments uh, where it's worked particularly well to get those folks to accept uh, the controls and, and get through the process quickly so now it accelerates the adoption? Sure. Uh, so I think in this space, and in, in many things in government, it's all about changing your risk framework, right? Uh, because somebody that doesn't understand the cloud is going to be afraid of it. 
um, or there's going to be all these questions in your security paperwork that are based on this incident that happened 10 or 20 years ago, like Sean writing the essays about how you can't plug a USB stick into the cloud. Um, what, what worked really well for us, and it was slow and it was painful, but was going through the normal process and step by step by step questioning or bringing folks in and doing it really collaboratively in an educated way. If we had issued an edict from upon high, thou shalt use the cloud, exactly what used to happen will keep happening is people will be like, well, this thing I have had for 30 years, that's the cloud because this checkbox said so. So we really had to, to go slow through the process normally and bring people along then so that they felt that this was not just the safe thing, but the right thing. Um, what also really helps is if you can get the users and the mission at forefront because a risk that we that is invisible as many times is the user that you are not servicing. So one of the most powerful things that we found at VA were homeless veterans who couldn't get health care because they couldn't access our applications. You can't see them because they weren't in our system. But when we sat down with them and we actually recorded some of those sessions, that was transformative in terms of having people see the risk of like, I don't know, it's a new technology, but the risk is like, a homeless veteran isn't going to get health care or housed, that really changes the conversation. One comment. You know, I, I live in risk space. That, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> that, that's my job. Um, you know, in Space Launch, you know, I've, I, I've got NASA as a customer. I've got the National Reconnaissance Office as a customer. Um, DOD as a customer. And we make risk decisions all the time. And, and what Marina says is, is correct. I mean, nothing is 100% perfect, but if, you're not, if you don't deliver the capability that's needed on time, in some cases, lives are at stake, people I know, and in other cases, the national economy is at stake. So this capability for us was, was tremendous in getting it through that process within the Pentagon and getting people like me, the mission owners, to stand up and say, yes, this is what we need to go do. Here's how we're going to manage that risk. Thanks. Thank you, and keep pushing, please. <laughs> Um, I, I saw I, you shared a lot of positives, and um, it's really encouraging actually to hear some of those stories. And I was just kind of curious, what are the next capabilities that you're looking for? Like three, three years down the road, what are the sort of capabilities in the cloud that you're hoping to implement? What are the challenges that you know you're trying to solve right now? What are the new problems? You know, after having implemented DevOps and automation and all of those kinds of things, what's what's the next step? Um, it. I'm really focused on getting like this project to where uh, I think where I think I was at Netflix in 2010. So um, it would probably be a good idea. I haven't done a good job of this, but it would probably be a good idea to look at like where Netflix is right now, and I would <laughs> like to be doing that in five years. Um, uh, you know, I, I would like to start to see the DOD run more operational or production systems in the cloud because I think the reality is that the cloud, a, a well-designed piece of software that runs in the cloud will be more resilient to outage than one that doesn't, right? There, there are a lot of these um, national security systems that are running, you know, with less than 10 redundant data centers, right? And that's like less than one region at AWS. Like US East has 10 data centers, right? Or some, maybe more. Maybe more. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the only thing that I, I'll, I'll add to that is um, this is a long road, and uh, you've probably heard me hit this a couple times. I, I focus a lot on today because I, I, I have the incredible benefit and the, the honor to work with some amazing people, um, not only some, some of the best technologists, I think, in the entire world who we get to come out here, but also some of the people in government themselves who are uh, amazing people. And they have the mission, but they don't have the technical part. There's a thing that I say, which I believe dearly, is the engineers have left the building. There are pockets, um, but they've left the building. And a lot of bad decisions are happening today because of that. So if you want to know, from my perspective, the one thing that in three years, five years, my message to anybody in the entire government is get a nerd at the table at the right time. Because one person can stop some of the worst things that I see today, um, which are terrible things, right? That sometimes a result in people losing their lives, right? That's the consequence of where we are today. That's why this stuff matters. So um, every time I talk about that, I get goosebumps because it's real. And so in three to five years, I hope that there's a nerd at the table. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Just at that one time, that, that would be great progress. Thank you. I heard a little bit about all of the government works through contractors that work to the specs that the government writes. Um, I'd like a little bit more on how you worked with the contractor recently and how you bring contractors along with you, because in this case I know you drove it, and how you, you see that moving forward in the future. Yeah, so we, we came in and made an assessment um, on, you know, basically that there were fundamental capabilities that were missing, that the contractor didn't have in place, and that they needed to build out. And we worked with um, Lieutenant Colonel Beckman, who works for General Greaves, and is the PM of this software system, uh, and basically had to convince him first that, you know, this capability is necessary and we'd like to partner with you to push the contractor towards implementing this. Um, he was able to identify uh, specific levers that we were able to pull with, within that contract and, and, and with the contractor to be able to get some influence over a set of resources. And we set, we set up within the contractor, um, a, we kicked off what's called like the DevOps initiative on the program, and that DevOps initiative establishes four uh, software engineering teams that are all run by the contractor, and each one has assigned an Air Force representative, uh, an aerospace representative who's a partner on this program, and a DDS representative. And we, we consult with and, and support that Raytheon manager, and then uh, they have you know engineers that work for them. And then we've because we have that close relationship and uh, we are able to basically have heavy influence over the milestones that each of those teams is working on. And I have one team working on build and test automation, one team working on deployment automation, one team working on infrastructure provisioning, 
and another team working on the IA automation, the information assurance automation and auditing. Um, so I think a lot of the credit to how we've actually been able to do that is probably probably goes to Lieutenant Colonel Beckman. Um, uh, you, you know, and then the other piece of that is just like an incredibly close relationship with both the Air Force and the contractor. We do not, we do not show up and make an assessment and then shoot off, you know, create paperwork and then leave. Like I go out to the contractor site every week with my team and we sit with those teams and we do engineering work together. And I think that's a really, really important piece of it is that we actually sit next to you. And if you ask the individual contributors at Raytheon, I think they very much see DDS as a helper um, and that we are, you know, in a, in a ways, a champion for them, for the individual contributor, because we are trying to introduce capability that allows them to move faster. And they're under incredible pressure to move faster and, uh, and are not being given the tools that they need to be able to do that. So let me add that. So everything Eric said is um, absolutely correct. And um, what needs to happen, it needs to be consistent synchronization up and down the hierarchical um, command chain within big defense companies. So it takes the folks, the experts like Eric and, and, and Colonel Beckman understanding what needs to be done. It also requires that boss is the person's boss, that person's boss, that person's boss, up through me, ensuring that all the way up to the CEO of Raytheon that they understood or understand what the government requests and intends to do and essentially making the idea theirs so they own it so that when we leave the room, they keep um, you know operating in a fashion that we'd like them to operate in. So it, it's a... Um, both horizontal and vertical integration, synchronization of efforts, sort of, a, sort of an activity, which if it didn't happen, um, would essentially break apart and we wouldn't have had the success that we're having. Yeah. I mean, what, what we're seeing in, at DHS and across the government is just that too often the government contractor relationship is set up from the beginning to struggle. Uh, you have non-technical government program managers that are uh, reviewing hundreds of pages of written proposals from uh, from contractors and then making decisions that are going to affect years of development and hundreds of millions of dollars and it's make it it's crazy because it, it would never be work and it's something the private sector moved away from years ago uh, and we it's not something that serves the government well and it also doesn't serve the contractors well because when I talk to any of the amazing contractors that we get to work with they want to do good work. They want, they're, they're not working for government contracting companies because it is the uh, best way to make money. If they wanted to do that, they'd be anywhere else in the tech industry. They're doing it because they care just as federal employees care, uh, but the system isn't set up. So one of the things we've recently done is uh, trying to uh, shift that process of picking contractors. So we ran a um, department-wide contract vehicle where we had 114 different companies bid uh, on the ability to get new agile development work from DHS. And instead of uh, sending in a several hundred page proposal that would get read and probably misunderstood, they uh, submitted really two pages and then they came into us and spent a day writing code. We gave them a project uh, that we said, come in with your tech stack figured out. We'll give you um, some user stories. We will play the product owner with you. 
and uh, they actually delivered working software at the end of that day, and we reviewed their code, we reviewed their design practices, their project management practices, uh, and just today, actually, we awarded to 13 companies uh, that are going to be able to get work on this going forward, but it's from the very beginning, we're looking at it as a partnership and as one where it's technical equals working together, uh, and I think that's going to make all the difference. Do you have any tips for justifying the cost of using cloud products and services to agencies who have recently made a sizable investment in their own data centers? The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah, recently made an investment in their own data centers. Uh, there's a, there's an interesting quote, um, you think that you think that the professionals are expensive until you've had an amateur do it. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, a lot of these, at least my observation is that a lot of these contractors, like operating data centers, is not their is not one of their core competencies. Um, so they're amateurs, and it's going to eventually cost a lot more than having the professionals at AWS, for instance, run your data center. Um, I'll, here, here's how I, I look at that. Which um, we're not in the business, so the the in looking at the Department of Defense, um, I believe that we are in the business in certain cases of running highly secure environments to protect. Um, the systems uh, and the information that moves between those systems. I, I do believe that. Um, I don't necessarily think that we should be running um, uh, things like Mail Cloud and all these other systems that we build out that are out what people call our cloud. Um, it's just not the business we're in. We don't, we don't maintain software at the same speed as private industry. We don't view it even the same from a development perspective, right? In our world, we see developing software. The Department of Defense and much of the federal government sees developing software as something analogous to construction, putting up a building just like this, right? But it is not, right? Uh, there's a guy on my team, Matt Weaver, uh, who was part of the original team who came in for uh, healthcare.gov, who, who makes a really great analogy. It's closer to agriculture and gardening, right? Uh, nobody would say, let's, uh, let's put up a garden and then we'll come back in a couple years and revisit it to see how it's doing, right? But that's how we view this stuff. So I don't think that we should be in that business while we're using those type of practices. Uh, it is not, it doesn't end well. I already know that, right? Um, so I want us to focus on the things that we're really, really good at. And I want us to increase the capabilities that we have to support our missions. Um, we have invested the money, but we don't necessarily understand the cost, and we don't understand the cost not only in terms of financial, but also in terms of impact emission. And that's really where I think the heart comes in, is that the impact emission is very, very high today. So I want us to get much better at using and following commercial best practices, not trying to lead the commercial industry here, because we don't lead it. All right, I've got to be timekeeper. Uh, I see two more questions, and we've got about two minutes. So if we can do speed round, that would be great. 
The Council about the service models came up earlier, and I, I want to. It sounds like in many of your situations, you were providing the the service directly to your clients and establishing that abstraction layer between what the client experience is and how controls are imparted and, and impacted along the way. Uh, would you be able to go into more detail on some of the service models you're currently using today and service models you're considering using in the future? <laughs> Sorry, I know we have 60 seconds. Define, give me an example of a service model in the context of your question. The, the way you productize your offering to your clients, so in this case, your developers, what are the actual things you offer them, how much control do they have over this environment, and how much do you reserve to build in controls from a risk perspective into your products? Um, I think that's something that we're going to have to get better at over time and mature. I mean, we are very early on, I'd say all of us, in using cloud in this way. Um, I think an ideal situation, right, is that you have a lot of that built in so that I can offer a, a new contractor pops along and they start on Monday and bam, they have an approved environment to operate in, deploy in, not just for test but for production, um, without also being overly restrictive because the danger of that in government is we'll make a, a approved VA cloud pack and then we will never update it and then uh, you will be very frustrated very, very quickly. All right, last question, thank you. This is more for uh, General Greaves. Uh, you being a decision maker, was there a moment that made you decide that going to the cloud was a better decision? Absolutely. Um, we took a look at uh, where the program was in its maturity, the problems that lay ahead, the fact that we brought DDS in, and, and these guys were able to go places I can't go within, within, the, within the contractor's organizational structure. They were able to point out the specific problems that were facing us and they came up with the recommendation. And uh, when I did the, what my team did actually, the business case analysis for continuing down the same path of hardware instantiations or test environments versus what we see the commercial industry doing with AWS in this case, it was very easy for me to, to, to say go do it. Because they know what they're doing. Um, the contractor, it became their idea to go do it, which was even better. And then we had senior leadership all the way from uh, Mr. Kendall, as I mentioned, down through me to make the decision to go do it and do it now and get involved from the mission perspective to help the, 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 um, the CIO folks who have to make that decision, make that decision now. So that, it wasn't hard for me to do it at all. Thanks. The, just, just so you guys know, the impact on OCX is uh, test environments right now, physical test environments take three weeks to provision. Uh, I will have that to 15 minutes next month. Wow. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, drop the mic. Well, so first of all, I would like to thank the audience. You guys did so much better at asking questions than I could have done. You guys really picked it up and uh, helped us. Uh, second, pinch yourselves, because this just happened. Uh, we got the three largest agencies here with the leaders and the technology leaders and the innovators in those agencies helping us understand how they did it and how you all can do it. Um, so finally, I'd just like to say, uh, let's give these guys a big round of applause because this was fantastic. Thank you all. That concludes. And uh, have a great week at reInvent, everyone. <laughs>